Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Twelve years ago, Richard Harland left his job as a senior lecturer at the University of Wollongong to write full-time. Since then, he has published 15 novels and has just scored a big US publishing deal for his latest book, World Shaker. He has written fantasy for all age levels, from children's, such as the Wolf Kingdom books, Sassy Cat and Walter Wants to be a Werewolf, to young adult crossover books, such as World Shaker, the Heaven and Earth trilogy, to adult books such as The Vicar of Morbing Vile and its prequel, The Black Crusade. He has won five Aurelius Awards, including one Golden Aurelius, for Best Australian Novel in any category of science fiction, fantasy or horror, and has also had several listings on the Children's Book Council's Notable Books list. His author website is at richardharland.net, and he has recently put up 145 pages of free tips for writers of fantasy and genre fiction at writingtips.com.au. So thanks for talking to us today, Richard. Hi, good to be here, Valerie. Now, what prompted you to leave a tenured senior lecturer's position and go and write full-time? Well, the prompt had, had always been there. I wanted to be a writer since I was very, very young. And I guess I sort of have two halves to my head, which I've never really been able to explain or understand. But one side is creative and visual and that's the story making up side of my head and the other side is quite theoretical and analytical and um, I wanted to be a writer since I was about 11 years old and kind of got distracted along the way and um, moved into academia basically I couldn't finish the novels that I tried to write so that that kind of didn't give me much choice in the matter but uh, I also really cared about what I was doing in academia. I had some ideas that I wanted to work out. They eventually got published in uh, in um, book form in England. And uh, I guess I really enjoyed lecturing and tutoring. But I still wanted to be a writer, and eventually I managed to finish my first book, which came out from a small press, when my second book was taken up by Pan Macmillan, a mainstream publisher, they gave me the contract, but they wanted a sequel in a year's time. And I knew that because I'm a slow writer, there's no way I could continue my lecturing job and produce a novel in a year. Mm. And I, I struggled. I really squirmed and wriggled and tried to get out of it. I had six months study leave coming up. I sort of tried for six months, leave without pay. I did everything I could, and they wouldn't let me do it. So I had to make the decision. And the decision was... I I was nervous about it. I was nervous about it because I'd had writing block for so many years. I didn't know whether I was going to 
have writing block again and uh, the idea of becoming a full-time writer would kind of die before it even got started. But I had to take the chance. I mean, I, I would have spent the rest of my life thinking to myself, could I have done it? Yes, of course. I had to know. <laughs> and I have. I've done it. So I'm, I'm, that was the right choice. But it was, uh, it was like walking off a cliff at the time. People used to say to me, it's a courageous decision. In yes. the same way they say that on uh, Yes Minister. <laughs> now, you say you're a slow writer. Um, do you, is that a normal thing? Do you think you write more slowly than most other authors? Or do you think that's fairly standard? Well, I know I write more slowly than some authors, certainly. Uh, I really would write more than a thousand words in a day. My, my great virtue is consistency. I write day in and day out. And the thing is that if you write day in and day out, you don't actually need to write a huge amount every day because the pages mount up slowly and steadily anyway. I, uh, I, I sort of write some things faster than others, but on the whole... I'm a slow writer. I know that about it. <laughs> when you, you know, said that you knew you enjoyed writing even from when you were 11, did you enjoy science fiction and fantasy then as well? Yes, um, I did, but there wasn't so much around that in those days. Uh, I liked... I liked adventure stories, exciting stories. I liked imaginative stuff. And I, I did love the fantasy that was available. I mean, we're talking, you know, The Hobbit, The Lion, The Witch mm. and the Wardrobe, those kinds of things. There just was not that much uh, available in those days. And uh, I guess the I, what I really loved from the very start was telling stories. That's always been the big thing for me. It started um, with when my cousin and I, this was sort of about you know, the ages of 10 and 11, we um, had a huge junkyard at the back of his house and we used to build castles and submarines and aeroplanes with tin bars and all sorts of junk. And we made up stories that went for days and days. And um, we wrote them up in the end and sold them in the school playground. So that was my first sort of starting as a writer. But it was always the stories that came first. It's very commercial and, of you at 11. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Yes. It wasn't quite as commercial as it was intended to be because we thought we would be able to sell our stories for money. And in fact, what we got were swaps. We got comics and we got, we got lollies and we got all sorts of things. Right. that uh, Nobody actually gave part with hard cash. <laughs> But it was a real buzz, and uh, yeah, that's that's I guess for me the the real thing. Later on at school, I started getting praised for my writing as such, um, and in some ways that eventually led me into a into bad paths because I got more and more literary, mm. and then I started bogging down. I became too obsessed with the the with being clever with words. So now I feel I've kind of rediscovered the art of putting the story first and the words seem to come naturally. Mm. And tell us about your latest book, World Shaker. You describe it as steampunk. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, steampunk, is, it's a great phrase and it's, it's almost an accidental phrase because it was the term coined for something like the... Well, it was a term that came out the... Uh, same time that cyberpunk was around. The punk is irrelevant, really. It's If you think of steam age machinery, the best way to describe it is to 
it, it, it's the same appeal as when you look into the workings of an old-fashioned clockwork clock or you look into an old valve radio and hear all these fabulous intricacies of, of little bitsy pieces and the sort of the, the love of that old machinery is it, it's, it's a romance. It's, you know, you look at a, a modern sort of uh, electronic device and it's just a blank, bland blob of plastic. Mm. But that old machinery where you could actually sort of see into the guts of it and all the little, all the little fiddly bits and the, the brass and the, um, the steel and the glass and all of those little bits, if you can feel that fascination, that's kind of what steampunk works on. Mm. It works on the, the beauty of that old machinery mm. without worrying too much about the reality. So it's fantasy. It's a form of fantasy in, uh, in that it uh, involves inventing machines that never existed. And the amazing thing is, I think this is partly why... Um, Worldshaker has sold to the U.S. for such a fabulous advance. <laughs> it's a big thing over there. It's a whole way of life. It's a it's a growing subculture. People wear steampunk jewellery, you know, mm. made out of little cogs and and bitty pieces. Mm. Uh, there's steampunk clothing, fashion. There's steampunk art objects. You decorate your house with ornaments created out of um, bits of wire and glass and, and old-fashioned machinery, mm. steampunk music. It's a whole way of life. So it's a, it's a growing fascination. For me, it goes with uh, Victoriana. That is the sort of 19th century feel. Right. So if you think of something like the Golden Compass, yeah. uh, Philip Pullman's Golden Compass, mm. it, it sort of has gadgets. It also has very much that 19th century feel about it. It's a new line in fantasy. And for me, that's a great thing because much as I love Tolkien and the, the sort of the medievalish type of fantasy, I do think that fantasy is broader than that. And I've mm. always wanted to explore other possibilities. Mm. And how do you, when you're, when you're writing and you're creating worlds just like that, how do you develop a rich, you know, um, description of, of the world and, and what goes on in it. Do you actually sit there for days and actually plan it all out? Does it come gradually? How does that actually form in your head before you get it down on paper? Well, not so much days as years. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> years and years. I, I really, it takes me a long while for, to get a fantasy world complete in my head. Mm. And I'm not ready to write until I can, I'm actually in the world and I can live that whole world and know everything about it. So um, World Shaker, it was 15 years between the first ideas of the novel and actually wow. writing it. And that was, that's maybe the longest I've ever taken, but it's really, really less than five years. Mm. And I just, I just need a whole lot of different bits and pieces to come together. So it's not as if I can just sit down and um, and think up things on the spot. Mm. But rather, it just it takes time for, I suppose, putting the mind in the right sort of feel, and gradually ideas start accumulating. So I'm, you know, I'm sort of we're doing something completely different, an idea will come, I write it down, I'm mm. sort of going off to sleep late at night, the idea comes, I write it down, and <laughs> gradually all those little little parts and parcels come together. Is it just your imagination or do you research as well? don't really need to research. Um, the world shaker, I guess I've, I've studied a lot of history, so I know a lot of that, that stuff in the first place. Mm. Um, 
So the kind of 19th century background material, I don't really have to go out and, and read up on specially. It's with fantasy, it's more like having the, the feel and the atmosphere and developing things which didn't necessarily really exist. That's mm. the beauty of it. You mm. can you can sort of take from reality and just twist it up a few notches further or just deflect it in a different direction. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, I mean, the, the interesting thing about the World Shaker world is that I created the world without actually knowing how it related to our world. Mm. And it was only when I was in the process of writing the book that I read about Napoleon's plan. Well, it wasn't. It was a plan put to him by a, an engineer called uh, Mathieu Favier, who he wanted to dig a tunnel underneath the English Channel. And Napoleon was sort of at, at a time of peace just then with England, but of course war and hostilities broke out again soon after. And Napoleon was really interested in the idea, but he didn't follow it up. Now, it seemed obvious that he should have followed it up and actually dug that tunnel and invaded England by by tunnel under the channel. Mm. So that gave me the whole idea of making this into an alternative history. This Mm. is where the history of World Shaker departs from our real history. Mm. Napoleon does dig his tunnel, does invade England, and the world has been different ever since. Mm. Fantastic. Now, you've you've talked about having writer's block or and, and writing slowly, how do you get over it? Because there would be other people who are listening to this who are <laughs> suffering from writer's block. and what... uh, My heart goes out to them. <laughs> <laughs> do you have yeah. a, a routine? Do you have a, how, how do you get over it? Well, one thing is, I believe, a routine. That was a crucial discovery for me to actually set myself down every day straight after breakfast and start writing. So like this, for me, it had to be initially every single day of the year, less Christmas and birthdays. Mm. I just never stopped. And the other, the, the other part of that is that it's really good to give yourself a stopping time. Right. Like to say, for me, it was um, half past one. I would stop at half past one, lunch, no more writing for the day. So even if I was kind of in the flow of it, I would cut myself off. And the important thing there is that you still want to write the next day. See what I mean? It's sort of like, it's like you kind of, if you stop yourself in mid-flow, the inspiration is still there for you the next day. Whereas if you kind of exhaust yourself in one day, you aren't so eager to get back to it the next day. Mm, And uh, that really worked for me. I guess the thing about writing a big novel is that the inspiration has to be much bigger than any single day's work. I mean, I used to write poetry. I was quite successful in, in publishing poetry at one time, but poetry you can do sort of with a single spurt, whereas a novel has to be a much bigger thing. And what what I find, I can I now don't have to write every single day. I can sort of, you know, take days off here and there and it doesn't bother me. But if I leave the novel for a day or I leave the novel overnight, I am st- I've still got it in the back of my mind. I've still got all the developments in the story so far in the back of my mind. And so when I come back to it the next day, I start writing. I know I'm going to write. I don't have to fight myself because it's a habit. I'm going to mm. do it anyway. Mm. So I, I don't go through agonies of will I, won't I. But once I start writing, 
the inspiration starts coming back in. Mm. In other words, write first and inspiration comes rather than wait to be inspired and uh, and tear your hair out for days and days because yes. the inspiration doesn't seem to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what is a typical writing day for you then? You say you have breakfast, you sit down, do you <laughs> do you go through any rituals or or anything like that before I've you get going? To, had, yeah, I've had to fight against rituals. I had oh, really? a ritual, at, well, I had the ritual one time that I had a particular green pen mm. and when I got stuck, and I still get stuck from time to time, I still get writer's block, Using that green pen, it was an emer- my emergency lucky pen. I would use that, and the ideas would sort of resolve themselves. <laughs> and it sort of it worked because I suppose I thought it would work. Yes. I expected it to work, but the trouble with pens is that they run out of ink eventually. <laughs> and when it ran out of ink, I, I kind of I tried to, I actually hunted all around to find a bit of green pen that was exactly the same and yeah. I tried various green pens that were similar but I never got one exactly the same and in the end I just I had to it was a struggle I had to break the habit yeah. because if you you know if you rely on things like that then mm. you're giving yourself difficulties eventually but yeah my, my writing routine is still pretty much to start straight after breakfast to go till lunchtime sometimes I go on uh, beyond lunch but there's something else I do which I've never heard of any other writer doing it. Mm-hmm. It works wonderfully for me, but I wouldn't say that it would work for anyone else. But I actually sort of spend the middle of the afternoon doing completely different jobs, jobs around the house, hopefully oh. jobs that don't even involve email or anything to do with writing. Mm. And then kind of late in the afternoon, I just pick up pen and paper and I start thinking about the episode I'm going to be writing the next day. Mm. And I'm not trying to, I don't write it out or anything. I'm, as I, I call it pre-filming. I kind of, like, like a film director almost, I try to get the, the mise-en-scene, the sort of the atmosphere and the feel of the scene, mm. the general unfolding of the action. And I, I write down a few notes on that, but I've kind of visualised it in my mind. And the trick, I, think, I believe, this is what makes it work for me, is that you know, I'm, I'm playing with possibilities in the afternoon, but then overnight I go to sleep on it. And going to sleep on it does that sort of magical effect of erasing all the not-so-good possibilities and the, the version that I the version that I really came to in the end is kind of fixed in my mind as if it really happened. Mm-hmm. So that when I'm writing, when I start writing the next day, it's almost as if I only have to record something that really happened. Mm, mm, mm. Oh yeah, it's odd. I don't yes. know anyone else doing that, so <laughs> it works for me. Well, I think everyone needs to figure out what actually is going to work for them, and it's going to be different for everyone too. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, one thing that did help—I'll just sort of follow up on that. Yeah. If I can, Valerie. One thing that did help me to get beyond writer's block was the realization that, like everyone else, I have some things that I feel more strongly than others. Mm. And it's those feelings that I can make use of in writing. Mm. I had a, a, this, it, it comes from this sort of literary period that I had when I, I, I thought I could write experiences that didn't really have anything much to do with me. I thought I knew about them, I'd read about them in books, I'd thought about them, I'd understood them, therefore I could write about them. Yeah. But I 
for instance, a story that, that I agonised over for ages and never finished about an old man dying. Right. And I thought I could do it without actually having the necessary experience. Right. And I've, I've come to believe that, obviously, you don't have to be an old man dying to write about the, about the story about it, but you have to have the germs of that experience. You have to have some seeds that you can expand and grow. Yes. Until it's almost as if you do have that experience. Yeah. And I, I realise there are some feelings that I that are very strong in my life, and others that, well, you know, I, I don't haven't really had much personal experience of. So even though I write fantasy, I still look to use real feelings, and um, that was a bit of the of a discovery that uh, helped me get past the writer's block too. Not mm. to try and write too far away from myself. Mm-hmm. Write about what you know. It's the old adage, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, as I say, you don't have to have experienced it directly. Yeah. You need to have some little bits of experience, some mm. tiny similarities that can give you an idea of what it might be like. Mm. So you're kind of imagining beyond the feeling, but you've still got the feeling to start with. So at least you've got something to draw from. Yeah. Now, you've also had a long, uh, you know, an interest in language. Have you any desire to write your own language, like Tolkien? No, no. <laughs> Tolkien was a different... So he, he, he knew languages. I mean, he was a scholar in languages. I'm not a scholar in languages. When I had my 25 years of writer's block, and as I say, I did write some uh, theoretical academic books, I was very interested in theorising about language. That right. is how language works, what's involved uh, in, in grammar, what sort of, what enables us to particularly uh, create things in language that don't exist in reality. I mean, even then, almost by accident, I was producing a theory of how language can be used for, for fantasy. But <laughs> mm. um, I, So I was interested in the theoretical side of language. Mm. I love language insofar as I love making up names. And um, that... that occupies me for a lot of time but mm. I, I, I guess what I would learn from hope to have learned from Tolkien is that when you make up names when you make up a world where there are different expressions different names different terms for things you have to create something that, that is real in, ter- in, in terms of language you know you can't just throw syllables together mm. there has to be a rightness about it and uh, you know, Tolkien was the master at creating wonderful names, as well as whole languages, of course, because he knew how names are formed. Mm. He grew them. He didn't just sort of artificially throw them together. He grew them, and I really believe in that. You've got to sort of grow names. You've got to you've got to make them real in the way that real names are real. And you you you've written books for adults, young adults. Um, as well as um, younger readers, as well as adults. So do you have to get into a different headspace? What do you do to be able to switch between the different markets? Because it's quite different. Well, there is a lot of difference, but it's not as big a difference in terms of fantasy as it would be in terms of of realistic fiction, I think. Mm -hmm. Basically, I I mean, I've written, yeah, children's and young adult and adult, Mm. but Every time I'm writing the very best novel I can, I would, I've would i never really wanted to write for young, young readers because mm. then, I'd, then I'd be writing for someone other than myself. Mm. 
So, I, you know, my, my inner child is probably still around 8 to 12 years old, so I can still write fantasy mm-hmm. for that age group. But I don't, I'm not particularly aware of um, reorienting myself really? for a different age of readership. Um, World Shaker started out as adult when I was planning it. The main characters were 14 and 16. And nowadays, really, the age of your main characters is the main determinant mm-hmm. of what age you'll, you'll be marketed uh, towards. And I thought, yes, I can make this young adult. Mm-hmm. I didn't really rethink much. Mm-hmm. There was a, the, the Ferran books that I wrote before also started out as adult, the, the Ferran trilogy from Penguin. Mm-hmm started as an adult and became young adult, and that was a bit different because I had sex scenes in the adult version, which weren't working. Mm. So changing it to young adult I kind of was kind of like a motivation to cut out the stuff that wasn't working. Yeah, yeah. So it's obviously very instinctive for you. Well, yes, yes. I mean, the fact is, is there isn't a lot you can't get away with mm. um, with young adult writing nowadays. You know, there's no... There isn't. There aren't really. Once upon a time, you'd have said there are areas of experience where you can't go. Mm. Uh, that's not as true nowadays at all. Young adult readers are very sophisticated, mm. and uh, World Shaker, I would call crossover. That is, it's young adult, but it also works for adults. Mm. And I know that's because I've had feedback to prove it. So, uh, it, it it it's. As I say, fantasy tends to overleap those age boundaries ever since Harry Potter got taken up by adults and they discovered what fun it could be to read a fantasy book that was originally written for around about 12-year-olds. Mm. Um, it's And young fantasy readers, you'll find that when they go into the bookshops, they will tend to head for the fantasy shelves rather than the children's and young adult section. Mm, mm. Um. You've got this great website on, on writing tips, which we oh, think yeah. is fantastic, yeah. and it's at writingtips.com.au. What led to that project? Because it seems to be something that requires quite a lot of effort. <laughs> sure did. It sure did. Um, I guess it, it, the potential for doing it was there for a while. What actually inspired it in the moment was uh, a book feast event in Sydney, that's kind of like a literary lunch where students come along uh, and they get to have lunch and they get to talk to their favourite authors and uh, you know it's a really good good uh, occasion. Mm. But on this particular in this particular book feast, a whole lot of students from um, a high school in Sydney wanted to talk to me because they'd looked at my website, my author website, richardharland.net. And I had some old writing tips on there. A lot of authors put up a few writing mm. tips, and I'd put up a few writing tips. And they found those writing tips really helpful in terms of the creative writing projects they were doing. Mm. And I was very flattered mm-hmm. and at the same time kind of gobsmacked because I thought, gee, that was impressive. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that was just a few kind of off-the-cuff remarks. And I yes. thought, maybe I should think of doing something much more. Mm. And kind of felt, I suppose, that, I was the right person to do it mm. because, as I say, one side of my head is the analytical side mm. and it's the creative visual side that's very much to the fore these days. But mm. the, the, analytic, the analytical side still kind of sits back and sort of observes and makes notes. Mm. 
mm. retrospectively. Never, I don't never let the theoretical side start telling me what to write. But I thought, you know, maybe I'm the right person to do this, and uh, so I, I got started on it. And I never ever thought that I would take have to take four months out of my writing life to produce it. Yeah. It just kind of grew and grew. You know, once I started doing it, I had to make a proper job of it. Yeah, and uh, it became more and more comprehensive and probably said in the end just about everything I've ever thought in relation to writing. Mm. But, um, yeah, I mean, if I can help other people avoid writer's block like I had, Mm. if I can sort of, you know, encourage... I really believe that you need to get the the storytelling going early. Mm. You need to get that that sort of... You need to get your imagination working early and uh, it'll stay with you for the rest of your life. Mm. And so I guess it was a... It was a community service that ran away from me, but yeah, I'm proud of the result now. Oh, it's a great resource. Now, you also um, teach creative writing courses sometimes. What do you enjoy about teaching writing, and why do you do it? Because um, it sounds like you're busy anyway. <laughs> yes, I, I guess in a way I enjoy creative writing workshops for the same reasons I used to enjoy university teaching. Uh, the, the thing about being a writer is it's so solitary. Mm. You know, you're on your own. I have mm. to kind of, you know, make myself go out and meet people because yes. there's no actual need to. And uh, the feedback is so very slow. You're, you're working away by yourself, but by the time the novel has actually reached bookshop shelves, you've almost forgotten that you wrote it. Mm-hmm. So what I missed about university and what I knew I was going to miss when I, I uh, resigned was the buzz and the excitement, the stimulation of a lecture where you're kind of, my lectures were always very interactive, so kind of bouncing ideas back and forth in tutorials, that kind of, that excitement, Mm. uh, the feedback of of kind of knowing that this is really working well. Mm. I missed that. So creative writing workshops, uh, they they give me that that buzz again. I really look forward to them. Wonderful. Yeah, they can be great fun and, you know, especially to workshop other students' work. Yeah, because, I mean, we're talking creative people here. Yeah. You can never tell what's going to come out. It's always unpredictable. (laughs) There's a few gems in there always. Now, and finally, for the aspiring writers who are listening to this, what would you? What would your main tips be to them? the, The writers who are starting out, what would you say to them that they have to do? Oh, that's, that's a big one. Having just produced 145 pages, I'm trying to think how to condense this all down. Um, of course, I can't. I can't. Mm. But I would say think long term. Don't expect to just turn out a novel and be lucky. You have to be prepared for the long haul. And you have to be prepared for knockback after knockback because writing is that kind of business. There, there, you may be the most talented writer in the world and the timing still doesn't work for you for quite a while. Mm. So I guess my ultimate advice would be, it's the, it's the one thing I can say that I've got perfectly right in my whole career, after, among all the other things that I've done wrong. The one thing that I would say to do is never give up. Never give up. In the immortal words of Winston Churchill... <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Um, you're obviously very passionate about what you, what you do, and and we think, as I said, your writing tips website is such an incredible resource, and um, it's something that we certainly tell all our students. Um, so thank you very much for your time today, Richard. Yeah, it's been a pleasure having enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.